Before we start the podcast, just a few words from one of our sponsors. It's my pleasure today to welcome Steve Kohler. Steve is the Vice President of Attorney Relations for LawCash, which is a pre-settlement funding company. Good morning, Steve. Mike, thanks so much for having me here. As Proud Platinum sponsors, LawCash truly values the partnership we've developed with Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association over the past 10 years. LawCash provides advances to plaintiffs in the full range of personal injury. We've been in business for over two decades and were recently named number one funding company in New England in the Connecticut Law Tribune for the fourth straight year, as well as nationwide. While the core of our business is providing pre-settlement funding, we've significantly upgraded our services and are now in a position to serve as a complete solution for all of the legal funding needs for your firm. In addition to advances for the clients, we can provide surgical financing payable directly to the doctors and are now happy to be able to offer attorney financing as well. Steve, what makes LawCash different from the other companies that are out there? The services we offer can help level the playing field. And our advances are non-recourse, so if your client's case is lost, they wouldn't owe us any. When you work with LawCash, you're really getting way more than just a funding. Getting a team of highly skilled individuals who are there for you and your clients. Every firm will have a dedicated representative who will manage things for them personally, and your client won't be a number in the system. You can rest assured that they will be treated the same way that everyone at your office will, with the utmost levels of respect and compassion. We genuinely care about the people we help here, and that's the real difference. If you have any questions or clients in need of advances, please give us a call at 1-800-LAW-CASH or go to lawcash.com. We're always here to help. Thanks so much, Mike. And most importantly to you and to everyone, stay safe and be well. And thank you, Steve, for your sponsorship of CTLA over the years. We really appreciate it. And now let's go to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Pod Ipsa Locator, the podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Welcome. Today is September 25th, 2020 uh, to our podcast, Pod Ipsa Locator. This podcast is a production of the CLE Committee of the Connecticut Trialers Association. My co-host is Michael Walsh, and uh, we have a very interesting and topical show today and the perfect guest to discuss our topic. Denise W. Merrill is, uh, as many of you know, our Secretary of State. She was elected to her third term in 2018. She has focused on, uh, about a lot of things, but one of those things is modernizing Connecticut's elections, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, what's happened this year. Prior to her election as Secretary of State, Secretary Merrill served as State Representative from the 54th District for 17 years, and I found it very interesting that she was named by her colleagues the most respected by the other side of the aisle <laughs> and the most effective legislator. People say that about Michael Walsh, too, just so you know. <laughs> I wish they did. <laughs> most respected by the other side of the aisle. <laughs> Secretary Merrill is a graduate of the University of Connecticut. She's licensed to practice law in California, and she's a classically trained pianist, which is, I found, very interesting as well. As I said, today is a very topical story. Literally every hour today, this morning, there has been an article in one news uh, source or another about all kinds of things. We're hearing about things like naked ballots and red mirages, etc. But before we get into the details of those things, I want to focus first on the changes that have been made in the law this year by Public Act 20-3 as it relates to 
absentee ballots and voting by mail. Secretary Merrill, how are you today? Thank you very much. I'm surprisingly well, <laughs> given everything we're dealing with. It's interesting, I was telling you just before we went on the air here that I was, you know, kind of blissfully unaware this morning of what was going on because I hadn't heard the news yet or read the news yet. I immediately got on the phone and the email and so forth. And I started getting this barrage of calls from the media wanting me to come on the news shows, the radio channels, and get quotes from me. And they were all sort of concerned with people's questions about how the process works, how, how we're avoiding ballot fraud, how they can make sure that their ballot is properly cast if they're voting by mail and so forth. So I didn't realize this is probably in response to the national news once again today. And I can't help but start this by saying, we're gonna need every lawyer in this country to be thinking about all this now more than ever. I have put out a plea right here in Connecticut where I don't expect so much of a problem to have lawyers get involved at the most granular level, you know, become a poll worker, you know, volunteer for our volunteer attorney program where we're trying to get people who would be ready to respond to problems on the ground. You know, I, I have, as you heard from my resume, never been licensed in Connecticut, lived here many years, but I grew up and was raised in uh, near San Francisco, California, came up under a very different system and in a very different time. You know, I go back a long ways, as you can tell, 30 years almost now, just in elected office here in Connecticut, and I didn't even get started that young, I have to tell you. Um, but I've never seen anything like this, and I don't quite know how we're going to respond, but I think people need to be thinking about legally what's going to happen next and how we can all help respond to whatever it is. So there's questions on all sides about all of this now. Suspicions have been raised. I heard a survey this morning that said that 50% of the American public, when recently surveyed, said they will not trust that their vote was properly counted or cast. That is a shocking statistic because it is the absolute yeah. reverse of anything we've ever seen before. You know, in my generation, you never even thought, in fact, right up through probably 10 years ago, maybe, no one really thought too much about how their ballots were cast or counted. So I spent the first 10 years as Secretary of State, which is how long I've been in, trying to, as they say, modernize our elections. Connecticut is an outlier in many, many respects. The first one being, we don't readily give out absentee ballots and we have to have an excuse. We're in a very, very small number of states now that uh, still have to have some fairly narrow excuse to use an absentee ballot. And that has caused all the trouble, mostly because it's in our state constitution. And we are literally now the only state that has not either abolished or overridden that state constitutional provision. And it's because I like to say the state constitution shouldn't be a cookbook. It should be more a statement of principle. And that these restrictions, whatever you want them to be, should be in statute, not in the state constitution. And so I've been fighting for that for years now and have not gotten there. So we've modernized in many other ways. We, we're, it's much easier to register to vote today, for example, now than it was 10 years ago. We have a much better voter registration system than we had 10 years ago. But when COVID came along in March, I knew immediately that this was gonna be big trouble for Connecticut. We don't have the flexibility to respond in a situation like this. So our primary was supposed to be in April. 
I prevailed on the governor to postpone it, much against everything I had ever said I would ever do or, <laughs> or recommend, because it's not a great thing to postpone or change elections, right? But this seemed like we were going to have real trouble figuring this out. So we did, and eventually we had it, as you know, in August. Meanwhile, we had to come up with an executive order that in a very clever way, if I do say so myself, kind of expanded, shall we say, the definition of what excuse you could use to get an absentee ballot to include illness being a pandemic, for example, rather than just the strict definition, which actually doesn't exist currently in our statutes. But anyway, so we did. We, the governor issued an executive order allowing anyone, essentially, to uh, request an absentee ballot by virtue of being fear of COVID, COVID being fear of illness, not even illness itself. So uh, it was challenged legally and they lost because the court chose to uphold what we called our definition of illness. And so we did have the primary and then the, the legislature essentially validated it with 20-3 in a special session and extended it to the general election. So now we have the same sort of scenario for uh, the general election in November. Anyone can choose to get a, an absentee ballot. And as you may have seen from some of the national discussion, they, there seems to be some sort of differential being drawn between voting by mail and absentee balloting. And honestly, I think it's a, it's, there's not really a difference, honestly. Right. Uh, and that's right. one of the things we should all remember when there's this discussion about the fraudulent voting by mail. We've been voting by mail since 1832 in Connecticut. It was brought in into the state constitution as an amendment to the 1818 constitution because there was a clamor for it at the time, as there, I am sure, will be a clamor for it after this election because the voting, the voting public loves the idea that they have an option. And I think it's going to do nothing but put pressure on us to expand that option. Well, we you've got a, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. You've got a yeah. great line on your website. You've got a line that says, nobody should have to choose between their health and their vote. I don't know if you're the author of that line or not, but I'll tell you, I want to put it on t-shirts. I, uh, I think it's just Bingo. a great line. Right. <laughs> That's what everyone should remember. All of this is just about that. We're not doing this just to instigate voting by mail or any of those things. We're doing it to protect people's health and give them an option. So I have a question about one thing you said, which is if I apply and everybody's raising this question to me, including my wife last night, you know, she held up her application for an absentee ballot and she said, if I apply and I get permission to vote by mail, can I change my mind the day of the election because I, because I want to go out and go to the polls because I want to make sure my vote gets counted. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yes, absolutely. You can do that as long as you haven't already voted. You know, right. you, the president you suggested otherwise, maybe, but that's, that's <laughs> important difference. <laughs> yeah, although I would say even if you wait to, uh, I think personally, I think a lot of people are going to do exactly that. So with all the effort we're going through, I think a lot of people are going to kind of cop their bets and, and at the last minute decide whether they want to go in person. And frankly, I'm starting to encourage people to go in person. I'm really concerned about the Postal Service, for example just from some of the conversations we've had with them. And, you know, I just don't know how certain it can be, particularly if you live in Fairfield County, by the way. Yeah. I mean, Trump is losing. I mean, Trump yeah. is no. losing this election and he yeah. is going to try to create every false scenario he can 
to, right. to argue against its legitimacy. I mean, I think that's what we're looking at. So I was going to vote by uh, mail-in vote, and you know, I thought it was the smarter thing to do. But I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to show up on the day of the election. I'm going to vote in person because I'm afraid my vote won't count otherwise. Um, right. Or it will come in late and it'll be the subject of a legal battle somewhere. I hope not, but I, I, I see that happening. Right. You know, there was an article just that came out this morning, a different article. There's many articles, as I said, in the introduction. But one of them was about these naked ballots. And I think it was someone, in, it might have been the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, who indicated that because people are not using the the envelope that the state provided to send in their ballot, that those votes might be disqualified. And I know we're not going to have to edit you again here, John. Are we? Uh, you're not. You're not going into an area we're going to have to edit you again. Are no, we? no, no, no. <laughs> and so, so I worry. You know, people worry. I don't think this is a problem in Connecticut, for example. Though, whether, for example, if their signature doesn't match exactly their name because it says to sign your full name. Are we going to have those kinds of issues with, I know we probably won't hear in Connecticut, but are those the kinds of things that are people are concerned about? So can you address that? Yes, and you're right. It's not a concern here in Connecticut. Your vote would not be invalidated for any of those reasons, except I have to say, you do have to be careful with these absentee ballots. You have to make sure you sign the inner envelope. You really do, because that's the only way we can make sure you are the person sending that ballot in. The ballot itself is anonymous. You have to make sure you seal that inner envelope because if you don't, it looks like somebody could have tampered with it, right? So kind of common sense things, but even those, when those town clerks open the outer envelope and somebody's missing a signature, we make every effort to get back to that person and say, you know what? Your vote didn't have the signature on it, so you can cure it. You still have time. That's we why don't want I don't... The, we don't want those things to be the hanging chads of 2020. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> but I do so, think in other states, these are all going to be challenged. And it's a very upfront strategy on the part of the Trump campaign. They have so already we have that in Connecticut, yeah. Your Honor. We've got the inside envelope and the outside envelope. I didn't realize oh, that. Yeah. We've got that in Connecticut? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we have the inner, the outer, and we've redesigned them all with the COVID excuse you have to check off because we're an excuse state, so-called. You have to check that box that says, this is the reason I am getting an absentee ballot or I'm eligible for an absentee ballot. But anybody can check that, right? I mean, yeah. you don't have to be sick or have comorbidities. You can be totally healthy and still request a mail-in ballot, correct? That's right. And will, will those, the mail-in ballots be counted the day of the election? In other words, it's a, it, a, some, there's a concern, and I know you've seen this in the media as well, about the issue of the red mirage in some of the, the states where they're in high contest, where there will be a vote on the day of the election that'll indicate that one person has won, and then over time, the votes will be counted and indicate somebody else has won the election. Is there any concern about that here in Connecticut at all, or will they all be counted the day of the election? Well, there is a concern here. I don't know how real it is because realistically, usually we have 5% absentee ballots and we're planning on up to 70%. So that volume is enormous for our system. We did not have time to put in place a capacity for that. But that being said, I think we've taken a lot of steps to make sure things will go more smoothly than you might think. Let's put it that way. I think the bulk of the ballots will be counted by midnight on election day in most towns. Oh, do you really? 
Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Oh yeah, wow. I think the cities okay. are always late, frankly. Uh, yeah, and the right. legislation back to 20-3 did provide an extra 96 hours for the registrars to count. Okay. So if they need to, they will. But we don't start. So the and and we took steps in 20-3 also to allow them to start counting the absentee ballots at six in the morning. Usually they have to wait till later in the day. So. There were some steps taken there that I think will alleviate some of that. And I think more are about to be taken in if they actually come into the special session next week. Um, Has any consideration been given to having like uh, voting over five days instead of just on one day? I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, not that we have really big backups in Connecticut. We usually don't. But I think you could eliminate all the backups if you just, you had like voting Monday through Friday the first week in November. Has anyone given any thought to that? Oh my God, <laughs> you're breaking my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I have introduced that bill every year for seven years. Uh, it's We call it early voting. And right. 40, 40 other states have some version of early voting, making us finally without any early voting and without with very restrictive absentee ballotings, the worst state in the country for access to the ballot. Huh. And there's a lot of reasons it keeps going down, many of them political at the time. This year yeah. was no exception. But because it's in the state constitution, we have to pass constitutional amendment. Well, you're all lawyers. You know how long that takes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And we would have had to get a 75% vote in both House and Senate to get it on the ballot. We could have gotten it on the ballot this year. But of course, we only got 55 or 60% vote, so. Yeah. You know, in yeah. that regard, I, I noticed that in, in some, I was doing a little research before today, in some countries, they give election day as a holiday. And even in some other countries, they require you, if you're a registered voter, to cast a vote or you can be fined. I'd leave that one aside, but the idea of, a, of a, having an election <laughs> on a weekend or having an election and give, give everybody the day off would seem to make some sense. I know a few years ago, and I don't remember what election it was, there was a backup in the lines in Bridgeport and the machines weren't working. And I remember they extended the hours. Just seems like we should be erring on the side of letting people vote and giving them the opportunity to vote rather than trying to shorten the time. And early voting would be a great way too, obviously. Of course. And both of those, all those options have been on the table. In fact, in the bill that was in the House this year, in the, in the uh, National House, the idea of uh, election day as a holiday was in there, along with a lot of re required early voting day days of early voting. All that was in House Bill One this year, which of course didn't pass. I mean, it passed the House handily, but yeah. you know, the Senate never took it up. But all those ideas are definitely out there. It would sure help me if I tried to pass early voting if they required it at the federal level. I don't know how likely that is to happen. Probably pretty likely if you have a turnover in the Senate. I don't know. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what form of ID do you have to show when you show up to vote? Uh, believe it or not, that's a complicated question and with good reason, because what we do is I think we have a great law in Connecticut. It kind of cuts the line, draws a balance between, you know, someone's right to vote. You don't want to ever disenfranchise anyone, but you want to make sure they are who they say they are. So we, uh, our statute requires some form of ID be presented but it doesn't have to be a specific kind of ID. And so in other words, you can show something that shows, it's basically attempting to make sure that you actually reside at, you know, are resident of that jurisdiction because you've already shown who you are when you originally registered. So you have okay. the last 
of your social security on file or whatever. So you can present a credit, anything that has two pieces of information, either your name and address, your name and your signature, your name and your picture. So at least two things on it. And that's why we always give the example of the utility bill, which shows your address, something officially mailed to you within the last, I think it's 90 days or 30 days. Well, I've forgotten the number. And even in Connecticut, even if you have nothing with you, you left your wallet at home, whatever, you can sign an affidavit and cast a ballot. And then okay. that will only be counted when that's checked out or if there is a very close election. So I have to ask you this question. You've been Secretary of State for a long time now. Have, do we have any issues with voter fraud here in Connecticut? And we hear about voter fraud. We also hear about voter suppression. But do we have any real issues with voter fraud? And are you at all concerned that these new rules allowing absentee ballot voting by mail will have any effect on that whatsoever? No. <laughs> the short is the short answer. We actually went back and looked because of all this concern, really more about around 2012. That seemed to be the height of the concern about voter IDs and fraud. And yeah, we have had, I think, one claim in 20 years that actually wow. came to any kind of conclusion. And that turned out, as I recall, to be a Yale international student who thought they had the right to vote here and didn't, and someone turned them in. There have been occasional claims. None of them have panned out to be real. So I would say the short answer is, as uh, my friend Rick Hassan, he's a professor out at, uh, out at uh, Southern California State, He's a well-known authority on these things. And his famous phrase is, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than to experience voter fraud by the statistics. Yeah, Christopher Ray of the FBI was testifying two days ago. And he said, there's no evidence of any kind of coordinated national effort. There's just no evidence of that. And so when you hear our president get up there and talk about, oh, all of this fraud, you know, I mean, there's just absolutely no evidence to support any of that, which is, you know, I think what's so scary, really, that he, he's creating this whole vehicle to challenge the election with actually no support for it. I mean, it's frightening in a way. Let me ask you, you, you know, we do have a lot of attorneys that listen to this, and I know there's not a lot of need in Connecticut but what if attorneys listening to this wanted, you know, they had some time in their schedule and they actually wanted to, to help with the effort? What could they do? Is there any like dates that they can go to to help out? Or are there any, any vehicles in place that they can take advantage of to actually give up their time? Yes. Well, there is one here in the state, of course, if you just want to stay in the state. And uh, we're working with the governor's office. We have kind of a, there's a volunteer website for people who want to help out during COVID on any issue. And uh, we have coordinated with them and those volunteers. But if attorneys want to really help out, if you go to my website, myvote.ct.gov, there's a spot there. We're working directly with the Connecticut Bar Association to recruit attorneys to be poll workers, literally. Yeah. I think they'd make great poll workers, personally. Uh, having a knowledge of the law is very helpful in these circumstances, as we've been talking about. Yeah. And uh, so that would be my recommendation. But just be aware that all that, all election day is organized at the local level. So it would be, you know, a matter of a, a local registrar or clerk wanting your help. If, yeah, if Joe someone Port does vote by mail, can they track their vote? Yes, you can now. Uh, it's fairly rudimentary at this point. It's not as exciting as some other states have because we didn't have time to put it in place. But if you want to know when your application was actually received, it will be logged in as soon as the town clerk logs you in, they'll put a little AB next to your name. So when you go to our lookup tool, which is on that same website, myvote.ct.gov backslash lookup, 
and you look up your name and address, you can make sure you're properly registered, what your address is on record, just in case there's any mistakes. But now you'll also be able to see when the application is received and when your ballot is received back again. So, oh no, I'm sorry, I mistook. It, you can tell when the absentee ballot is issued to you after receipt of your application, and you will be able to see when your ballot was actually received and counted. So essentially, once you get it gets there, you'll know that your ballot has been counted, your vote's been counted. So those are the two pieces of data we can now give a voter. I, I kind of feel like we're giving you a quiz here, like we're throwing questions at you to see if we can get, get one that you don't know. But let me ask you this. What do you do if the morning of the election you wake up and you don't, you don't feel very good? What, what would you recommend that person do? Well, it depends. If you have gotten an absentee ballot, if you're in the just-in-case category and you got your actually have your ballot, but you haven't voted it yet, you can take it down and drop it in these ballot boxes, which are fabulous. They have been a lifesaver for us. And that way, you know, you don't go through the mail because it's too late for that. If you drop it in the ballot box anytime up to eight o'clock on election day, it will be counted. Could you have somebody else put it in the ballot box for you? Like, could you have a spouse or someone else deliver it? Only if it's a family member. Yeah, there's a list of people in the statute that are able to do that, family member or someone that you permit to do that. And there's a place you can sign to make sure that they have that permission. And if you do do it by mail, when do you, when should you have it mailed by? And I know <laughs> there's not a direct answer to that. But <laughs> that's a trick question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been in discussions with the Postal Service. They insist they can do it, but I would still say five to seven days. Really, oh, where will those uh, ballot boxes be? Will they be at the polling places? No, they're all in front of town halls throughout the state. Okay. We bought one for each town, and many towns have more than one. Okay, that's good to know, I think. Yes. And so yeah. one other question for me, and then I'll let Mike ask a question, but uh, what do you think is going to happen here up on election night? Are we going to be up? Late at night, or are we going to be waiting a couple of days to know the result? I mean, I mean, nationwide. Do you have any idea or nationwide. thoughts on that? Oh, it's going to be more than a few days, John. I'm sorry. I'll just give you one example. Michigan just passed a statute, which the Democrats and Republicans all applaud, which is they became what they call a postmark state. So if your ballot arrives and is postmarked by election day and received within 14 days wow. of the mm. election it will still be counted. And that's because they're erring on the side of making sure that every ballot gets counted, even during COVID when we have all these challenges. Mm. So it's just a different way of uh, cutting but the that, That's okay. I mean, we don't need to get the answer on election night. I mean, earlier you were talking about the 1860s, and I don't know for sure, but I can't imagine in the 1860s they got the answer on election night. I mean, it must have taken days to get the results of some of those states in. So, I mean, it's okay if we don't have the answer on the, on the election night. I mean, let's get it right rather than try to rush it. I would agree, but I, I hope that people don't use it to a political advantage, the delay yeah. and the, the delay and the certainty. That's the concern. I agree. Yeah. yeah. But accuracy also matters. And I'm kind right. of right on that one. I wish you'd go talk to the governor. The governor, governor is very concerned about timing. Uh, so is Marty Looney. Uh, some of the other legislators, they're very concerned because of the chaos that can ensue if we don't right. know what's happening. And of course, there then there's another whole set of questions about 
the Electoral College, what happens in those swing states if, if it's close. And there's still legal challenges going on, which definitely is in the offing. You know, it's, 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 an, action, and it's an active strategy on the part of the a campaign, that Trump campaign, and they've been very open about it. They have said they will spend $50 million putting uh, legal people in every polling place in every swing state. <laughs> have you seen any signs of potential intimidation that they might, like you said, that Trump people might send people to the polling places to intimidate people? Not in Connecticut. I don't think no. Okay. Honestly, and believe me, I'm glad I'm not a swing state right now. I feel very badly for my colleagues in places like Michigan and Kathy Bokvar in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, these people are fighting off multiple legal challenges right now before the yeah. election. This is already the most litigious election in history, and it hasn't even happened yet. Do you have any advice to all the people listening as to what they should do this year? Should they vote early or should they use mail or any any? Any way will work. Any way will work if you do it soon enough. Early is definitely, I mean, bearing in mind that the ballots aren't even ready until October 2nd, which is coming right up. Uh, but uh, still, it'll take another week to get them to you, at least. And so you've got a very small window to turn around. That's why for a while I was advising people use the ballot boxes. They're the most sure thing. They're collected every day, sometimes multiple times. And the clerks like it too, because they can, it's more efficient. But uh, barring that, if you're not in one of those high risk categories, and we yeah. know we've provided lots of money to the town, safety equipment, PPE in every polling place, cleaning services. We've provided all that by thanks to a federal grant. So I'd go to the polling places if you can. Now you might have answered this before and I missed it, in which case I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask it again. When can you start counting the ballots? Um, do you have to wait till election day to start counting yeah. or can you count like a week before? No, no, everything is counted. And the first time they can count at all is 6 a.m. on election day. And then they will only count the ballots that have not come in on election day because everything that's come in before election day has been noted on the list so that someone couldn't come in and vote. You know, if you came in and your name has a little AB next to it, you're not going to be allowed to vote. But okay. there are a significant number that come in on election day. Those will be counted after eight o'clock. But why can't you count, start counting earlier? Wouldn't that make sense? Uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And I've been asked that question multiple times by legislators this week because yeah. they're all anxious to count the, the absentee ballots earlier. The problem is we run them through the same tabulators that you use for the polling places. And the minute you start doing that, you start having all kinds of protocol questions about, oh, and where do those ballots go? And who's in the room when they open them? And where okay. do you store them? And what are all those protections in place to make sure that everyone is counted? So uh, it's really a very, very difficult thing to do. Plus, you have to have extra tabulators around, which we don't have. And you have yeah. to open and shut them very carefully every night to make sure the count isn't tampered with. So all those okay. checks and balances make it hard. As I'm listening to you, I'm wondering whether the classic election eve exit polling is going to be va valid this year, because if a lot of the votes are done by mail, we won't know what people actually voted for because they won't yeah. be able to take those polls, correct? That's correct. And actually, we've been nationally working with the national media on exactly this question. You know how years we've been moaning about the fact that they call these elections with 1% of the vote in. Right. And, 
especially when the East Coast has voted before the West Coast. And that's actually, some people are talking about, ooh, the strategy is get more people to vote not by mail so that the East Coast comes in early and it looks better than it is maybe, who knows. I think all of that is probably a hopeless kind of gesture because we don't really know what people are gonna do. If we have a sudden spike in coronavirus, two days before or a week before the election, that could change what everybody does. And so, and conversely, if we don't, that could change things. And what if we have a storm like we have three times now in the last 10 years, a week before the election, and there's no power to the polling places or God knows what. We've gone through a lot of this kind of emergency planning over the years here. So, uh, so many things can influence us when we just have the one day. But the states that have early voting are more the ones to watch. Florida has 10 days, for example. That's gonna be a place to watch. And it's, I have no idea. I think all bets are off in this election. And that's a critical state too, Florida. So, so what do we have to do to get early voting here in Connecticut? Does it require a constitutional amendment? Oh yes, that's what I was saying before. You have to, we, we had, it did pass with uh, about 60%. So that means, unfortunately, I tried to talk uh, the legislature into coming up with uh, another vote in the special session on the constitutional amendment. Because I honestly think it might have passed, but they're not willing to do it. They're, they're pretty much in hunker down mode. So it would require another 50, at least 50% vote from the next legislature. So just the early voting. And this doesn't include, by the way, anything on absentee balloting or voting by mail. Just to get some form of early voting, we could put it on the agenda next session and try to get it to pass again in House and Senate with at least 50% of the vote. Then we could put it on the next statewide ballot. So the first time it could go on the statewide ballot would be 2024. Ugh. Wow. I know. Doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess it's I something that I know you've advocated for it. I read your editorials about it and uh, certainly would seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we're kind of stuck now because the time frames have just moved past us. Unless, like I say, you get a federal vote that requires early voting, then, uh, then we could move forward. Well, this right. has well, been a fascinating uh, discussion. I learned so much more. <laughs> There's so many things I didn't know. So thank you very much, uh, Madam Thank Secretary. you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on to the podcast. Sure. See you at the polls, huh? Okay. Thank we'll you see you much. there. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4300. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org.